Hello, my dear listeners. As we close out 2023, I thought I would offer you an extra, extra episode. A little while ago, I sat down with Micah Benji Belong of The Word in Black and Red podcast to have a discussion about the birth and birthright of Jacob and Esau. Our discussion overlapped, of course, with my own episode of this podcast, 4.10, Can I Interest You in a Nice Bowl of Stew? I'd like to share the discussion that we had with you. I think you'll find it very interesting. Just one word of warning. While on my own podcast, I made the decision that I would keep the language clean, they have not made that same decision on the word in black and red. No judgment on them for that, but I just want to let you know that if you listen to this extra episode, there will be some swears. Please enjoy. The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. I know that the Lord will take up the case of the poor and will do what is right for the needy. Yes, the righteous will give thanks to your name, and those who do right will live in your presence. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama MB, joined today by the wonderful W. Scott McCandless, the host of the Retelling the Bible podcast. Once again, Scott has just a wonderful take on this story, and so we're very excited to jump in here and tell that new story as well. But first, we're going to dive directly into the text. Genesis 25. Abraham married another wife named Keturah. The children she bore him were Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. Dedan's sons were Ashurim, Latushim, Leumim. Midian's sons were Ephah, Ephir, Enoch, Abida, and Eldah. All of these were Keturah's sons. Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac. To the sons of Abraham's secondary wives, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, sent them away from his son Isaac to land in the east. Abraham lived to the age of 175. Abraham took his last breath and died after a good long life, a content old man, and he was placed with his ancestors. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in a cave at Machpelah, which is the field of Zohar's son Ephraim the Hittite, near Mamre, Thus Abraham and his wife Sarah were both buried in the field Abraham had purchased from the Hittites. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived in Be'er Lahai Roy. These are the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore for Abraham. These are the names of Ishmael's sons, by their names and according to their birth order. Nebaioth, Ishmael's oldest son, Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. 
These are Ishmael's sons. These are their names by their villages and their settlements, twelve tribal leaders according to their tribes. Ishmael lived to the age of 137. He took his last breath and died, and was placed with his ancestors. He established camps from Havilah to Shur, which is near Egypt on the road to Assyria. He died among all of his brothers. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was forty years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel the Aramean, and the sister of Laban the Aramean, from Padam Aram. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, since she was unable to have children. The Lord was moved by his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. But the boys pushed against each other inside of her, and she said, If this is what it's like, why did it happen to me? So she went to ask the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two different peoples will emerge from your body. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. The end of her pregnancy, she discovered that she had twins. The first came out red all over, clothed with hair, and she named him Esau. Immediately afterwards, his brother came out gripping Esau's heel, and she named him Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when they were born. When the young men grew up, Esau became an outdoorsman who knew how to hunt, and Jacob became a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was boiling stew, Esau came in from the field hungry and said to Jacob, I'm starving. Let me devour some of this red stuff. That's why his name is Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright today. Esau said, Since I'm going to die anyway, what good is my birthright to me? Jacob said, Give me your word today. And he did. He sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate, drank, got up, and left, showing just how little he thought of his birthright. So here we really see two different accounts of what's happening here. First, talking about what Abraham is doing after the death of Sarah, talking about Abraham's death, and then Ishmael's descendants. And this whole other family <laughs> really gets very little, not very much talked about throughout the rest of the story, except that you have to remember who are the Midianites. The Midianites are the people who Moses go to when he is uh, when he is running away from Egypt after he's murdered an Egyptian for oppressing his fellow Hebrew, and he runs away to the Midianites. And so here in this story, we are reminded the Midianites are our cousins. These people who live all throughout Canaan are our relatives that are coming back into the story of Israel as it's being told later on. These are the names of some of these villages and towns, and we actually have some archaeological evidence for some of these. But some of these names here are emblematic of what's happening here. You recognize these names in the names of other people who are living in this area that have a longer-term relationship with the people of Israel. And then I love the fact that Ishmael's descendants are talked about here in this story going on to be another tribe, another tribe made up of 12 tribal leaders who go on to be the tribe of Ishmael. In contrast to the tribes of Israel, Ishmael also has these same sort of things. And then immediately after that story, Jacob, who is the person who will go on to be named Israel, 
is said to be this other nation again. So here we see just the birth of nation after nation happening in this story, that all of these people are interconnected and related to each other in this really deep and meaningful way. And it says that they came together to bury their people, right? Not that they were all separated and out there and everything, but that Ishmael was buried beside his brothers, that Abraham was buried by Isaac and Ishmael, by these supposedly divided nations. But they come together for this death because they are ultimately related to one another. Yeah, so there's there's this really strong connection across these. There's this recognition of kindredness. And this was kind of probably obvious to them as they lived in the area. They, they spoke a very similar language. They could probably understand each other pretty much alike. And they honestly probably shared a lot of religion too. They probably had the same uh, it's quite possible, in fact, that Yahweh is a god who who initially came from Midian. Yeah, this there was this real common connection and kindredship that was recognized, and that's really important in this whole story. Yeah, especially because like the salvation of Israel comes through the Midianites, right? This family that is related to them is far distant, and it's only because Moses was taken in like a refugee by the Midianites that. The people of Israel are ever able to have someone who comes and liberates them from the oppression that's happening in Egypt. And that he was able to encounter his God or the God of his ancestors while working for his father-in-law, right? So, yes. And... That is echoed in the fact that Abraham is buried in the land of the Hittites. He's not buried in his own land. He's not buried in what you know is called the promised land or anything like that. There is no imperialistic claim on it. It is recognized as the land of the Hittites rather than something special that was given to them, right? And so they are recognizing that they are foreigners in this strange land that are still here and taken in by these outsiders. But, you know, I'm just thinking before we we move on to the second part of the story, there probably is an important point to be made about these names and these figures, because, of course, we know as far as we can tell, these aren't historical figures, at least not in any way that we can verify. Right. There may have been some historical figures that these these people were based on. But the way these stories are used and told, they're clearly about their mythological figures in the sense that they're telling us not about specific historical events so much as they're telling us about what these people understood about themselves, what they understood about their neighbors, how they saw their place in that society. These are all stories and these figures are essential stories of them understanding their place in that country. And I think that's really important when you get to the story of uh, of Jacob and Esau, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The importance of 12 throughout the Bible is just this repeated factor, right? But it is interesting that like it is the sign of a group of people, right, that come together for this purpose, that it is the tribes of Israel, it's the tribes of Ishmael's family, it's the number of apostles that Jesus takes on. You know, there in the book of Revelations, there's 12 gates and 12 angels that come about. You know, and 144,000 um, yeah. people saved or whatever it is, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yep. which, is, which is just 12 times 12, yep. you know, and Ancient people had a thing for numbers. Yes. Yeah, and, and one of my favorite stories is the story of the, the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years compared to the 12-year-old girl who uh, who dies, and Jesus heals both of them, right? And so 12 is this sort of like good, whole, complete number. It's not quite the same as 7, where 7 is numerologically complete. 
But the importance of 12, it, it keeps coming back and forth yes. over and over and over yes. again. <laughs> so I think there's so. something else going on in that story, but we're not probably not going to get into that. <laughs> yes. With all that symbology here already present in the text, we come down to the story between Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau are just so interesting because they are just polar opposites. Like Esau is the symbol of toxic masculinity. He comes out hairy and bullish and red and ruddy. In the Bible, there's only a couple of times that anyone is ever described as red. And it's Esau and, and David are the two that really are prominently this way. David is described as ruddy and red when he's a shepherd. Like, he's a dirty guy. He's out there, you know, wrangling sheep and all these sort of things. Getting sunburnt and yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, there's there's some implications that David is a redhead and Esau might be a redhead here as well. Actually, the, the origin of the name of the people of Edom and be, it being red probably is a connection with red soil in the region, that that's probably where the name comes from. So this is a story that they told to explain the name that probably had it, its origin in something else too. So Yeah, and we have their... Esau's name, which literally means red, probably is a reference to this red clay dirt. And then in contrast to Yaakov, probably means to come from behind, comes from the word, the Hebrew word to heal, like literally he was grabbing onto his brother's Yaakov, his heel, and but it also means to supplant, like to replace. <laughs> and so it's it's interesting that there's all these different meanings here while also possibly meaning may God protect, right? And so you have the ruddy, dirty child that's, you know, supposed to be masculinity, and then the usurper right after him, who instead of being somebody who can defend himself, we're asking God to protect him instead. Um, and so instantly with this story, you know, Rebecca is crying out, why is this pregnancy so hard on me? And the Lord says, there are two nations in your womb. Just like there are these two nations described above, here we see an even more intimate connection that the people of Israel are directly cousins with the people of Edom. And so these two different people emerging from her body and the logic of the world being the, the stronger people will be the ones who dominate. But here in this verse, I think that it's uh, it's a reversal of what we expect to have. So often when we talk about Hebrew poetry, we talk about the fact that Hebrew poetry rhymes by either advancing a thought made in the previous line or by reversing the thought made in the previous line. For example, in Proverbs 132, for waywardness kills the simple and the complacency of fools destroys them, right? It's that if you wander off the path, it'll bring you destruction. It's advanced by that secondary thought that just like wanderness, like complacency, sitting back and not taking charge is going to kill you as well, right? It advances the thought. Um, and then reversing that thought is verse 33. But those who listen to me will be secure and will live at ease without dread of disaster, right? So there's this advancing of the thought that rhymes in Hebrew poetry. And then there's the reversal of the thought that rhymes in Hebrew poetry. And I think there are two different interpretations that you can take here. One people will be stronger than the other. You could think that Jacob's people will be stronger than Esau's. But I think that what's happening here is that you're seeing this uh, prediction of a role reversal. 
that Esau's people will be stronger, but actually it's going to be that Esau's people serve Jacob's people rather than the other way around, the way you would expect it to work, that the weaker would st- serve the stronger. Yes. And and I mean, the whole story is all about reversal and turning the upside down. And of course, this is a theme that happens again and again, especially in the book of Genesis, where the, the younger son, the weaker son, somehow keeps on taking over. It happens it happens with with Isaac, then with Jacob, it happens with Joseph, uh, and it just keeps on happening. It's always the youngest son, even when you get to King David. He's the youngest son. He's the one who gets chosen in that same passage where he's ruddy and handsome. Yeah, it's this thing that keeps happening. Absolutely. And it is the symbology for the people of Israel, right? That they firmly believe that despite the fact that they're currently being ruled by Babylon, right, that God has chosen the side of the weaker, that God has chosen the side of the oppressed consistently throughout these stories, that God is not sitting there going, oh, no, this is the way it works. And so you younger kid, you sit down, you take your turn. Instead, God is uplifting those people that you expect to be oppressed. And so here, one people will be stronger than the other. Esau's people will be stronger. And yet, Esau's people will serve Jacob's. That reversal is also really funny in the context of the rest of what we just read, right? (laughs) Is, Is the fact that these same stories that tie us together, that tie the people of Israel together with their neighbors, are going to be used as justification for oppressing their neighbors. This very holy story, right, of the interconnectedness of all humankind will then be used as justification to say, we have to wipe them out because we are the only chosen ones and we will be the mighty ones and they will be the fallen right and it it's just to me a reminder that that power is a problem <laughs> power is absolutely a problem and the stories we tell to justify our use or abuse of power are just they are dangerous stories are powerful and they can be dangerous because of what they do. And, and this story, when it is being told by oppressed, by an oppressed people to an oppressed people, is incredibly uplifting because it's like, oh, God is on our side, that, that God is going to give us what we need to help us survive. But when that is then taken by the dominant socioeconomic class and used in reverse, it can be used to justify all kinds of evil, not just in Christianity, right? Not just in Judaism, but in every faith where it becomes the dominant mode of thinking including in countries where atheism has become the dominant mode of thinking, the lack of belief in God, right? It has become oppressive to people who don't believe that way, right? Or people who are not in the dominant group. And so this lesson has to be a constant reminder that we can become the powerful people. Even us leftists can become the powerful people. <laughs> it's a long way off, right? We imagine it can't ever happen. <laughs> but but if we become the powerful people, then this book is just as much an indictment on us as as it was on the people who had power in the first place. Absolutely. Yes, it just keeps on happening. And that is the reality we all have to struggle with as human beings. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it does take a, a proper analysis of the power dynamics at play, I think, to <laughs> because <laughs> as soon as I say that, I'm like, well, you know, there's all these there's all these cisgendered heterosexual white men who are out here saying <laughs> you're oppressing me because you made me watch the Barbie movie. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> <laughs> but, so we we shouldn't uh, 
we we should take that that critique of ourselves with a grain of salt and remember that we have to properly in, uh, analyze our power in various states. Yes. One of the other things that I love about this story is Jacob in this story is, I think, a gender nonconforming person. Esau is the big masculine person. He's the outdoorsman who knows how to hunt, but apparently doesn't know how to do anything else. And then Jacob is the one who's staying at home and fulfilling traditionally female roles, that Jacob is making the stew, that Jacob is staying at home and then feeding his brother, right? And it's through these traditionally feminine ways of caretaking that he ultimately gets the power over his brother Esau. Yes, that's the thing that really struck me. Not only that, yes, Jacob seems to be much more comfortable in in what would have been considered the traditional roles of women in that society, but he recognizes the power that's in it. You know, and and even I I can sort of imagine, you know, all these years Esau is bringing back the the deer or whatever he killed and he he'd bring it into the kitchen and then well, guess who gets to take over the food when it gets into the kitchen? It's, it's Jacob, and he fixes it up. And, oh, as it turns out, at the end of the meal, once it's all prepared, there really isn't all that much left for Esau. And so everybody else eats, and, you know, he gets to control um, he gets to control Esau with, with the apron strings, if you like. Uh, there is real power there. And Jacob is clearly the kind of guy who's not above using any kind of power that he can get. Um, you know, he sees himself probably at some kind of disadvantage, but he's the heel grabber and he's always going to take whatever advantage he can get. And the power of the kitchen is one of them, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like it works out to his benefit. Like, you know, like I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with what Jacob does here, right? Like that Esau is coming in here expecting to get what he owes and and he's just he's entitled, right? He thinks that he deserves all of these things and then he comes home. We don't have any indication that Esau has been out in the field for months at a time. Like we don't have any reason to think that Esau is actually starving. It's just like, you know, he he says I'm starving, but, you know, I'm starving in the same way that I'm starving when I come home from work. You know, I just had a big lunch and I'm I'm starving because I want something now. And Esau doesn't seem to have the emotional maturity to realize that he's not entitled to the labor of his brother, that he should be exchanging something right here. Right. Um, and and Jacob is like, yeah, I'll I'll make you a deal. <laughs> Give me everything. <laughs> give you some of this too. Yeah, I sort of imagine it as as maybe on this day Esau uh you know hunt, hunting wasn't wasn't good. He you know, he ran all over the place and yes, he's exhausted, he's he's famished, but he didn't really catch anything this day. So there's no meat. But you know, Jacob, he knows this thing you can do with lentils, right? And man, is it delicious. <laughs> and he uses that to his advantage, right? Absolutely, absolutely. This terminology specific, let me devour some of this red stuff where Esau is seeming to consume himself, right? That he's described as this ruddy red person, and then he's devouring this red stuff. And it, it just seems like there's some metaphor there. <laughs> Perhaps, yes. I mean, it's obviously an alternate origin of the name or another an alternate yeah. <laughs> explanation of the name but yeah it is kind of funny that yep yeah he's literally eating himself out of house and home right here in this one meal <laughs> himself yes <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, is the red stuff there therefore supposed to be dirt, right? That like he has given up his his birthright for dirt, right? This thing that is not very useful. And particularly red dirt, like red clay dirt that doesn't produce very many things. I can't grow a very good garden because I have tons of red clay dirt and I literally have to dig it out of my yard <laughs> to replace it with something good. Um, and so I wonder if if that's going on here too. I'm not eating this thing that's actually good and healthy for me. I'm just devouring this red stuff because it's there and I can. And it's probably and it may also be a reflection looking at the people, people of Edom that, you know, they lived in this mountainous territory. There was probably not a lot of good farmland. Maybe they couldn't grow a whole lot of grains or lentils and all those useful things. And that's probably somewhere in the back of this as well. Right. It's it's about the people present. There are stereotypes of the different ethnicities. Right. It's like we can explain the material conditions that are going on here. Maybe that's what's going on. But there's also probably some ethnic stereotypes that are going on about the Edomites, that they are just these devourers. They're these hunters because they don't have a great farmland. And so they have to hunt for their survival. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there are tons of stereotypes behind the story. And that that's sort of the the angle I really took in my approach to this story, because we actually know a little bit about the relationship between the people of Judah, particularly, and the, the people of Edom. And it was not a good relationship. It was absolutely not a good relationship. There's one time in the whole Bible where we actually hear the people of Edom speak. And it's at the end of one, Psalm 137, the famous uh, Psalm of, you know, by the, by the rivers of Babylon, we hung up our lyres. We couldn't sing there because they'd taken us captive in Babylon. Well, at the end of that amazing Psalm, this beautiful Psalm of lament of how the Babylonians had destroyed them just before they say, let's, you know, smash all the Babylonian babies' heads against the rocks. It says this, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites on the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. And so apparently when the Babylonians were destroying Jerusalem, the Edomites turned up to applaud. They said, just this is the best day ever. We finally get to see Jerusalem fall. This is not a good relationship. <laughs> how on earth can you have a people so thrilled to see their neighbors their close kindred who spoke a similar language, who had a similar God, rejoicing like this over their destruction. And we have exactly the same thing in, uh, there's one book in the Bible that nobody ever reads called Obadiah, and it's exactly about the same thing. It's all about how horrible the Edomites were because they celebrated when Jerusalem was attacked and destroyed. And we're not quite sure what attack that was. It might have been Babylon. It might have been another time. But it's the same thing. They hated them. Why did they hate them? Well, we actually, there are a number of passages that tell us why the Edomites might have hated the people of Judah. It's hard to verify a lot of them historically, but we're told in 2 Samuel that King David established garrisons in Edom throughout the whole town, and he made them all his slaves. So this, this idea that David made them all slaves in the time of Solomon, there was a revolt because of that mistreatment and the royal house of Edom 
supported by Egypt, no less, rose up in revolt against King Solomon because of their mistreatment. And then there's another one, the days of King Joram, they revolted again because the reason why they revolted in the time of King Solomon was not simply because David had made them slaves, but he actually carried out a genocide. So it says specifically, David, when he sent in those garrisons, he killed every single Edomite male. That's called genocide, right? And obviously it can't be realistic because if he actually had killed every Edomite male, there would have been no more Edomites, but it's obvious, it's aspirational. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to kill them all. So do you blame the Edomites for rejoicing and celebrating as they watch the Babylonians tear down Jerusalem? So these were close neighbors, close people, and they absolutely hated one another. And that's what this story, I think, is about more than anything. Well, and, you know, as you're saying all of that, it reminds me of a time when Israel was was hoping to rejoice over the destruction of their enemy in the in the book of Jonah, right, where Jonah goes to Nineveh, the, the capital of Assyria. Assyria, the nation that had just conquered the Israelite people who, you know, it, historically, not in the uh, mythology of the book of Jonah, um, but who had done all of these evil things against the people of Israel, right? These are the ultimate evil that are going on in their society. This is like the Edomites who were oppressed by by Israel and Judah, wishing the, the fall of their enemy. And then Jonah is so angry because God chooses to have mercy on Nineveh. And here, I would understand why the Edomites are angry that people of Israel get mercy. And then there's a book of the Bible that's devoted to the Edomites not getting mercy. <laughs> And that goes back to the fact that the Bible is not a historic document, right? It's it's talking about these rivalries that happened in history, right? It's talking about lots of historical things, right? But it is not meant to be a history book, right? The people of Edom in Obadiah are fictionalized into a people that is just wicked, right? They're not actually all evil, just like our enemies, most of our enemies anyway, <laughs> aren't entirely evil. God still loves the people of Edom. God still cares about Esau and cares about the commitment that Jacob makes to Esau later on. Even though Esau gives up his birthright, Isaac still finds a way to bless him right, and care about him. And the Bible cares enough to record that blessing that go down to these people who are supposed to be their worst of enemies. Like you're saying, this is a mythological story in the sense that it's helping them to understand their relationship with each other. And one of the things I found really interesting is I can just imagine, I can almost imagine, you know, a bunch of Jews sitting around a fire telling the story about their great ancestor Jacob and how he pulled one over on the Edomites and how uh, that's why we get to do whatever we want with them and they we, we slave them and I suspect at least in my literary invention I suspect you know probably when when they put the Edomites to work on their building projects, whatever, I'll bet they gave them rations of this red lentil stew stuff. And they said, oh, you guys love this. You're a great ancestor. He gave up everything for, for this. So I bet that that's what they fed them all the time because it was cheap and they could, they could do it. And yet at the same time, I can also imagine, uh, and this is what I did in my little episode, I can imagine a bunch of Edomites sitting around the fire telling almost exactly the same story, like almost word for word, the same story about those, uh, what do we call them? Rat fucker 
Judahites, those those heel grabbers uh, who are who who tricked us and who laugh at us every time they they feed us their red lentil stew that we you know, uh, but that's all we got to eat. You know, I can just tell you know it's it's the same story. It's just the inflection would have been different. Uh, so I can I can almost imagine the same story being told on both sides with just a little tweak to to get back at the other guy. Because really, Jacob doesn't look all that great in the story either. He is just taken advantage and he does not look great. That's another reading of the story, right? Is that Jacob doesn't look good. I like the interpretation that I don't see anything really wrong with what Jacob's doing because I don't like Esau, right? I don't like the character of Esau because I struggle with masculinity. I don't like uh, the masculinity I was taught to embody. And so Esau is that figure. And so I don't like him. You identify more with, with Jacob. Yes. Yeah. I think I do too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a gender non-conforming, non-binary person. So I, I get Jacob. I Jacob is comfortable to me. Esau is not. But I think you can absolutely read this story and say, what the hell is Jacob doing being so exploitative that maybe Esau was out there hungry in the field, trying to bring home food for his family. And what does Jacob do? He pulls a capitalist on him, right? And just when you are at your worst situation, you know, when you have to go to the hospital and you're not sure if you can drive yourself, so you have to take an ambulance that costs you $4,000, that ridiculous cost that they're able to charge you whatever they want for because you're desperate, because you have no other option in that situation. And he you know, what if Esau really didn't have any other option? What if he really was starving and Jacob cynically takes advantage of that to win over this situation? I push back on that interpretation just because I'm not convinced that Jacob actually gets Esau's birthright here. I think that happens in the next story <laughs> because I don't really think that Esau can give away his birthright. I think it's just more of a way of legitimizing what Jacob does to Isaac. But we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> but I think it's, it's at least for the Edomites, it's a perfect illustration of the way the Israelites treat them, you know, and that's that's what it would have spoke to. Them. Yeah, of course, there's two stories about how Jacob got the, the birthright. You can't really reconcile the two of them anyways. When, it, when you're talking about what this means to the relationship between these two nations living alongside these the, each other, it spoke volumes to them, I think. And what's so annoying to me is that we have not learned our lesson from this story, right? <laughs> is, is that this whole chapter is trying to tell us about how we should be in solidarity with each other. Right. It's trying to tell us that we are family, right, that we are all related to each other in this really deep and intimate way that when our patriarch died, when the person who connected us all together, we went and buried him together. We put aside our differences to make sure that he was honored in the way that mattered and was buried with his family. And then when Ishmael dies, when our brother died, that we all came together and all of his brothers, not just the two who had the rivalry, but all those other brothers that we didn't think were ever going to happen afterwards. <laughs> So there's a total of eight brothers, right? And that he died there among all of his brothers, that all of his family was present. And then here in this story, we're extrapolating the story out to talk about the further divisions that happen here. But the beauty of the story of Jacob and Esau, but the beauty of the story of Jacob and Esau is that despite having every reason to hate each other, despite Esau being justifiably murderous after losing all the things he thought he was going to be able to cling on to, that Jacob and Esau ultimately reconcile and come back together. And through their solidarity, they're able to live as family again. And here, you know, we are as modern leftists who 
are so concerned with the debates and arguments that somebody had a hundred years ago and how someone treated someone else a hundred years ago. And we say that that's the only way that people of that ideology can ever behave. And so we can never trust someone because they believe something that's just a little bit different than we do. <laughs> um, you know, because I use this label for myself instead of that label for, for myself. And so we, we can't trust each other. We can't build solidarity when this story is all about the fact that we should have solidarity, and yet we got conquered by Assyria and by Babylon because we celebrated each other's demise rather than defended one another. Well, I, I'm sort of thinking a little bit uh, in a bit of, I, I appreciate all of that. Uh, yeah, no problem with any of that. That's that's fantastic. I But as you were saying some of that, I was thinking in a little bit of a different uh, direction. I'm thinking a bit about the stories that we tell about our neighbors that sometimes you know, in our minds justify some really destructive attitudes. So I was thinking as a Canadian, thinking about our relationship uh, with our uh, Indigenous people, which is a very troubled relationship in many ways, our fault. And, you know, and the stories we tell, though, the stories we tell, we tell a story here in Canada about how, well, we're not as racist as those Americans down south. Uh, so we're good. And so, you know, whenever things come out that that actually show, well, we engaged in things like genocide and, you know, we uncover graves of uh, indigenous children that were taken away from their families and never went back and these horrible things. And, and these. But the story we tell is about how we are so much better than those Americans. And so we can't see ourselves that way. So we can't get past the story. And of course, we also tell stories full of stereotypes that I don't even want to get into about indigenous people. And that also justifies, it's not true, but it justifies those beliefs. So being very much aware of the stories we continue to tell about our neighbors, and we're sometimes not even aware of it. A lot of the people I talk to aren't even aware of the things, the stories they tell about some of their neighbors that are really not based on anything, but in their mind justify some pretty horrible ideas. And they don't see themselves as racist or anything like that because, well, this story justifies that opinion, right? So that's a very human thing. Yeah. And the story becomes the arbiter of all truth, right? Because facts are really hard to keep in our heads, but stories are really easy. <laughs> and and which is part of the reason that this podcast is about Bible stories and not about Marx, right? I think it is a lot easier for us to hold stories in our heads, especially stories that have de defined the life and faith of billions of people. But I would highly recommend everyone read An Indigenous People's History of the United States. If you're a member of our Discord channel, you can go to our reading channel. Uh, channel and you can go through and find my little thread on in the indigenous people's history of the United States and let's talk about it. Let's go in depth into what's happening there because the amount of cultural erasure, the amount of not hearing their stories, you know, the fact that we don't even have a common story with them to say that Jacob and Esau sat down together and screwed each other out. Like we read that book and realize we're not even telling the same story, right? We are telling radically different stories about what happened and can't agree on the basic facts. And so we have to just drop our biases to be able to hear and communicate with people who we have profoundly hurt. And maybe listen to their stories, yes. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And maybe don't pull an Obadiah when they rejoice over the United States falling, you know? <laughs> like. Uh... <laughs> 
that's exactly what we've been doing with our with our indigenous people. Yes, we've been pulling an Obadiah. That's a good one. One of the things that frustrates me about when people talk about whataboutism, whataboutism is specifically a way to deflect arguments that were made by communists. And basically, whataboutism is saying, I don't have to take any moral responsibility for what's happening here. Because you could point out every time that someone would point out, oh, this thing is happening in Russia. Well, you could point out that something usually worse is happening in the United States. But most of the time, you know, these arguments were made about the Soviet Union. And then when you held up a mirror to say, well, you know, that's happening in the United States as well, right? Then we would say, oh, that's whataboutism. And so that's totally illegitimate. And the same thing is happening in the modern Democratic Party in the United States, right? Is that the Trump Republicans are doing terrible things and all of these things and like deserve to be called out about them. And then they point out that, oh, corruption is also happening on the Democratic side of the aisle. And instead of saying, oh, that's actually a serious critique, we should stand as morally superior to the people that we oppose and give Get rid of those sources of corruption, they say, nope, that's what aboutism. And so it's not a legitimate critique because I am pointing out that you're wrong, so you can't point out that I'm wrong. And somehow that's supposed to be a logical fallacy. I told you that you were wrong first, and so that's the only way we're allowed to have this conversation. <laughs> when in fact Esau and Jacob were both in the wrong right here in this conversation. They were both entirely human. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Esau is coming in expecting his brother to serve him, that Esau is coming in here expecting these things, not offering anything, not offering any sort of relationship and demands these things. And then Jacob goes on and demands things as well and demands an even higher price and takes advantage of his of his weakened brother in this state. So anyway, that's all to say that <laughs> that we absolutely should be thinking about the way that the stories that we tell about each other are most often just not true. Like I hear these stories that are told by very ardent anarchists about, you know, the way that that communists act. And it's like, eh, maybe they did in 1930s Soviet Russia, but I've met a lot of communists and they don't usually act that way. <laughs> and again, you know, we are facing Babylon. We are facing Assyria. We are facing a power that is far greater than us. And we can't afford to be divided. We have to be standing in solidarity with each other and give each other food when we need it and respect the people who are giving us the food. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully something a little better than red lentil stew, but... I'm not a big fan, but yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to what I said about the indigenous people, though, but it is about storytelling. Even as I said it, I was talking about our indigenous people as if they belong to us. And, and that's a false story, obviously. We're talking about a people who were here first. I mean, so even unconsciously, I am speaking about another people who are the first people who have been here way longer than us as if somehow they belong to us. What a ridiculous thing to say. But that story is so deep inside that sometimes it comes out. And that's the power of a story. And that's sort of what I'm trying to illustrate here. Even our language, right? The the term linguistic racism comes to mind where like we talk about people who oppress people as minorities, right? Minor, not important versus the majority, the major, the most important, right? And then we talk about women as a minority when women make up like 51% of the population. 
So, you know. But it's about power. It's not about numbers, of course. But Exactly. <laughs> so, and there's so many ways that that incorporates. In. And even the fact that the book I recommended is the Indigenous People's History of the United States. The first couple of chapters are talking about the ways that there are these interconnected networks that spanned all of the nations. I believe the book is talking about the Akwesasne um, or also known as the Mohawk people, that border Canada and the United States and the different kinds of oppression that they faced on both kinds of the border, right? They were different kinds of oppression, but more than anything else, it was this sudden border, this line, this division between what used to just be one people that had these large trade networks that just moved back and forth. And and similar things happened on the southern border as well, that traditional peoples who had just moved back and forth for millennia suddenly were divided because of these outside rules and laws and institutions that we had placed um, on those borders to control and divide people. And that's a big reason why the U.S. has this huge ongoing dispute over its southern border. Yeah, I think the biggest thing to take away from this story is like that we as outsiders of the story have the privilege of not taking a side in this story, right? We don't have to say, I am team Jacob, I am team Esau, right? We can say they're both fucked up and like we need to objectively observe this. But there are fights that we have to take a side in. There are fights where we have to choose a side and recognize that we can either choose to find a way to make this work and stand in solidarity with each other, or we have to break up that relationship and figure out how we can do that a different way, right? The the fact that trans lives are all wrapped up in union battles, right? The fact that the rights of black folks to not be murdered are interwoven with a conversation about poverty and the poor and and so many other systems that exist here. The fact that the conversation about immigration is in our society pitted against working people who are working really hard when it's the boss who's stealing all your money, but the story tells us to hate the person on the other side. We have to break those stories or we have to change those stories. Or sometimes we have to say, we don't get to work together right now because the way that you're seeing this makes us enemies, when in fact our enemy is much larger and we have to stand together if we want to defeat Babylon. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for this wonderful conversation. I always appreciate having you on. And dear listener, please go and listen to Retelling the Bible, episode 4.10. Can I interest you in a bowl of stew? <laughs> and hear that other perspective um, that that Scott just put so wonderfully into stories again so that we can hear them again for a, in a new way. So thank you again, Scott. I so appreciate you. And thank you, dear listener, for being with us, for offering your wonderful reviews on all the apps that, that do the review thing. I have loved listening to them. And thank you for sharing the podcast far and wide and joining our Discord and telling us that it has been meaningful to you. I just so appreciate it. And every time that I get frustrated or feel behind or overwhelmed by anything in the show, it has been your words and your kindnesses that have brought me back and reminded me that we are doing this to build solidarity between many different groups so that we can face our common enemy together. So thank you so much. Now, Pastor Micah, take it away. Thank you, Future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. 
Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go. And see those stories that have been used to divide us. And reject them. And choose instead to stand in solidarity. Shalom. Shalom.